Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jesse, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabeg people. On today's podcast, we talk about the documentary, The Kingmaker, and later on, truth-telling. But before we do that, Sigs, let's catch up. What have you been up to pop culture-wise? Well, it's funny, and I texted you the other day. My Mm -hmm. lovely father-in-law said, hey, and he knew it was in June. It was Filipino Canadian Heritage Month, and he said, I was listening to an interesting interview on CBC. I'm like, yes. He goes, someone named, I think his name is Jim. Jim Agapito? I'm like, yeah. He goes, he's a podcast, and it's called Recovering Filipino. Mm. And this Filipino-Canadian filmmaker, and I can't do it justice because he has such energy. He talks about being a bad Filipino, and (laughs) and it's a 10-part series about him reclaiming it and knowing more about his culture. And he talks about food, interactions with his mom and Lola, and some of the episodes are funny about being a vegetarian and being Filipino. <laughs> like, it's really funny. I cannot do it justice, guys. It's called Recovering Filipino. Jim Agapito produces it, and he's the host, and he has his family members on. And, like, this Tuesday's episode was like, why do I always take home leftovers at a Filipino party? About <laughs> on. He, yes, yes, yes. He really masters it really well. Like, I really hope he has a second season, but he talks about titas and basketball, and it's really, really great. It is, like, coming into a party and listening Listening. He has such energy, but to hear his mom, like, oh, we didn't mean it that way, and just talking about even, like, the love, and literally in our warm-up, we just talked about spaghetti and chicken, and why is that a love story for Filipino food? It's really mm. great. I highly recommend it. I can't wait to listen to it. Actually, when it yeah. did come out, when it got dropped... I had a whole bunch of people contact me saying, Kuya, have you listened to this? Kuya, have you oh, listened no to way. this? So it's like, it's on cues. I'm just actually getting through the Lost Shaman podcast right now. So that's up on deck next. You yeah. love it. And, you, Lost Shaman, uh, tell me. Sonically beautiful. So sonically beautiful. And Did such you hear a that, Sam? I know yeah. Sam's listening to it. Sam, you're doing a great job. It's an ex- excellent job. I can't wait to talk to Sam, like season four. But And it also ties in well with what I had just been watching and had done the taste test with Tresse at the oh, same time. Right. So with all the Philippine mythology. So anyways, it's great. But yes, coming back to Recovering Filipino, yes. it sounds clever. It sounds smart. I love the pun on words, recovering yes. and recovering. That's exactly it. I just thought, oh, really smart. Can't wait to get to this. And can't wait to hear this on the pop culture landscape. Absolutely. And then this is the other thing. You and I talked about it. So the Gossip Girl reboot dropped last week on HBO Max. Yes. Okay. I'm going to be very quick and concise to the point. This is not a taste test. And we've talked about it before. You and I have recreated Gossip Girl when we were in New York. When we visited. (laughs) And again, a shout out to our lovely friend, Ray, who stepped in for some taste tests and hosted with us. She immediately texted me and said, did you watch this? You need to call me. So... All right. The leads are beautiful. The two lead actors that play Julian Calloway and Zoya Lott, beautiful, beautiful Mm -hmm. actors. And I think they're over 20, so I don't feel very uncomfortable about saying that. My issue is they already, and spoiler alert, they already dropped who Gossip Girl is in the first episode. Hmm. 
And the main reason I think they want to do that is to entice those people who had watched it in the late aughts and early 2010s to come watch a show again. It was a very hard thing to really, I guess, comprehend. I can understand why they did it. And it's very jarring to see that. You're like, okay, this is who Gossip Girl is. And you're like, okay, great. You would enjoy the name drops. They do callbacks to the characters Mm -hmm. previously from Nate Archibald to Dan Humphreys and such. But I guess we're going to have to watch more of it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in the fall. But I was just like, that was very jarring, and I'm very in the middle. And it's very awkward, I guess because we're in our 40s now. It is very awkward to see high school students have sex scenes on shows, and you're just like, this is icky. Like, I, I'm i just getting older. I, I was just like, this I is, think yeah. so. I think yeah, to I myself, I felt a little bit torn. I mean, this is also, I'm just curious to watch it. I don't know that it's like a burning desire to necessarily watch it. It won't be. It's Start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks for the heads up on that one. Yeah. But, but the, I, their way, yeah. though, I would just wonder if they're just trying to get away from the original conceit of trying to guess who Gossip Girl is. And if they've gotten that out of the way, then it's like, well, then what story are you telling them? Is it just about entitled rich kids at a private school in New York City? Bing, 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 bing. However, like, watch the first episode, then text me, because you'll be like, oh, I can see the angle they're coming from. Yeah. Will it last, right? Because, right. right, like, Gossip Girl was a blog. Yes. And now we're in a time of influencers, Instagram, and such. But I, I would love to see your take. You already hit the nail on the head, but I'd love to hear your take from it, okay. which I'm sure we'll talk okay. about in the fall. I'll let you know, you know, in the middle of the summer and text you accordingly. So. Absolutely. What have you been into pop culture-wise? You know, really catching up with the Drag Race franchise, my goodness, it has just exploded. There is every brand extension possible. And so for those that watch Drag Race now have first season of Drag Race Down Under that it recently premiered and then, of course, ended just a month ago. And Uh so, and to be quite honest, I was a little underwhelmed. And I think it has, yeah, I mean... It was still fun to watch, but I have to say, like, one of my favorite queens left early. And so oh, no. I, someone that I thought, oh, could go to the to the end, got eliminated quite early. So I was a little disappointed in that. And I have to also say, too, I don't think I get all the down under references. And so uh. I think I'm missing <laughs> a lot of the jokes or the lot of the references and stuff like that. And I remember my friend Imra, who also listens to this podcast. Oh, Imra, yes. Yes. She was, like, saying when we were watching Drag Race Holland... Yeah. <laughs> how like there was a lot of different cultural references and so she was filling me in and it just made watching that that much more fun so it was just like i'm watching drag queens all speak english and yet at the same time it's like i know there are things that i'm not getting so anyways if there's any australian listeners and i know that sometimes we've had australian we have listeners, had. feel free to like text us through our socials and t- tell us what you think or tell us what i might be missing you know i don't have an p- exact pinpoint exactly but there were times where it's like I think that was supposed to be funny, honey. Like I'm referring to Michael. Yeah. But I just didn't get it. And he's like, I didn't get that either. And I just kind of wonder if Drag Race Canada translates that way across the world too. Perhaps, you know? perhaps. Perhaps. And so season two of Drag Race Canada is going to be coming soon. They just haven't announced the, I guess, premiere date. Mm-hmm. The other Drag Race that I'm uh, also watching is RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star season six. So that one just started. And again, one of my queens that I wanted to see stay yeah. has also left 
early. Oh, no. I'm glad you didn't do a pool or anything. Yes, I'm so glad I'm not in a pool this year. <laughs> yeah. And then I also have problems with the game mechanics this year or oh, for the last up? two years. So usually in All-Stars, what they do is they have the two drag queens that did the best lip sync for their legacy. And then one of them has to choose from the bottom two who gets to go home. Oh, wow. So they've changed that up last year and have repeated it again this year, which is, is, is that the top winner lip syncs against a lip sync assassin. Uh-huh. You know, so this is someone from like that's been identified in previous seasons as doing excellent lip syncs and then competes against a person that won that week's challenge. And then, of course, RuPaul chooses. And again, they choose for their legacy. Now, if the person who won the challenge wins the lip sync, they get to choose the bottom queen to go home. And if the lip sync assassin wins, then they select the person that the group chose to go home. Oh, but the interesting part is this, is, is, is that, well, what motivation does a lip sync assassin have but to just, just do it awesome. for Rue and probably contractual duties? Money? <laughs> money? And, uh, well, yeah, probably money, but I don't think that. I think it just has to do with their contractual duties of World of Wonder. And I just thought, I was saying to Michael, what they really should do is get the lip sync assassin to lip sync for their legacy and have a charity be appointed. Oh, that's you nice. Know? Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, so if the drag queen who won that week's challenge doesn't win the $10,000 tip, mm-hmm. then that tip can go to the lip sync assassin's charity. Charity And then yeah. tell us about the Trevor project or tell us about the Ruby project or mm-hmm. all these different projects that, you know, people can talk about. Anyways, that's my only kind of critique of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, the current season and the previous season. I think they need to change that game mechanic up. And then the last one to talk about is Drag Race España. Oh. So, oh, yes. I've just only had a quick peek into it. Have to say, very different drag altogether and very kind of character driven and filled with personalities. Just interesting seeing different expressions of drag around the world. And it's been fun to kind of see that. And this is all kind of on Paramount Plus's new network. Ah. And yeah. So as that's being kind of promoted. So that's what I've been up to pop culture wise. That takes us into our normal regular segment this week. This week's assignment was watching the Kingmaker documentary. You know, I remember vaguely hearing about this a couple of years ago, and then you had brought it up, Sigs, and said, we should watch this. So for those people that don't know the documentary, it came out in 2019 Mm -hmm. by documentarian Lauren Greenfield. And it's on the life and influence of Imelda Marcos, who, if you don't know, is the former or was the former first lady of the Philippines and wife to Ferdinand Marcos, who served as the 10th president of the Philippines, who ruled in what people would now call authoritarian democracy. (laughs) And that is really akin to fascism and why Marcos at some points has also been referred to as a dictator. (laughs) The documentary itself really demonstrates and attempts to demonstrate that Amelda and her supporters undertaking to rehabilitate their family image through specifically her son, Bong Bong, and his name is also Ferdinand Marcos, and of course, hence is the junior. Yeah. Later on in the documentary, do we also learn of alliances between the Marcos family and the Dutertes after Bong Bong's failed election attempt at the vice presidency during the 2016 election. So Sigs, I want to come back to you. I want to know what you thought, because I've got many thoughts to share, and I want to hear what your thoughts are. You have many thoughts, and I, when I queued it up to watch it, because we have Crave, and I was pulling it on, I 
was totally my stomach churned. Like the first ten minutes, I'm like, is this a documentary or is this a send up? Like at first, I'm like, no, that is Mel DeMarcos. Like I thought it was like just some sort of send up. And what's funny is when I was like, oh, who's the director? Lauren Greenfield. I looked up her previous work, and her previous work was a movie called Queen of Versailles. Have you heard about that? Yes, I've seen that. I've seen, okay, and so it's sort of like, I go, was that a send-up or a documentary? And I just researched it. I'm like, oh, it's just about living in excess and how this family's not making ends meet. And then there was no resolution. They were just, like, burying themselves in a hole with this excess. And yes. so I saw it. It was really hard to watch The Kingmaker. And mm-hmm. I even texted you. I'm like, I cannot get through this. And you're like, sometimes, Siggy, not getting through this is getting through it. He just <laughs> framed it back. And he said, and you're like, just tell me what your thoughts are and we'll talk about it. As you've been such a didactic kind of person just learning and through, I just taken aback. It was cringeworthy. Like the first few minutes, a scene of her on a tour bus, just handing money out to citizens mm. of the Philippines. And just hearing her, I'm like, is she scripting or is she putting on this persona? And and all it took for me in the first 10 minutes is to hear this word in my head. And I don't know, Jez, you may have some thoughts on this. Yes. I always heard this word when I was growing up. And my mom, unimpressed with someone she may encounter, who is Filipino, a, a female, where they said, oh, my God, as if she's the doña. Yes. Have you yes. heard that phrase before? Yeah, I've heard it. Like, yeah. yeah, the doña. Very much the dame or the queen or the rena of some yeah. sorts. Very high in status, elite in a lot of ways, overly stylish. Herself is a tastemaker of sorts. Yeah, and comes across as being judgmental, you know, towards mm-hmm. people. And it's, so it's just incredible, just incredible. And I would agree with you. It was really, it was just shocking to kind of like to see the first set of scenes kind of roll out in that first 10 minutes. And it's kind of like she's just kind of flipping bills and sending money to kids. <laughs> and clearly for a photo op, right? Like for a photo op, and again, trying to, as described earlier, rehabilitate her family's image. Yeah, I think you'll bring this up as we go on later because some of the, the things and notes that I've seen you wrote or whatever, it's, it's very true. It's, it was just shocking. And I think you have thoughts on uh, the narrative that was portrayed by the director Greenfield. Yeah. Um, but I, go I ahead. Three, go ahead with that yeah, part. Yeah, I have yeah. three specific things that I found fascinating about this documentary. Mm-hmm. And then I'll talk a little bit about each of those ideas. But the three things were is, is, is that... Lauren Greenfield really paints, as the New York Times had talked about, Amelda being an unreliable narrator of her events. The other is her really skewed reframing of how she saw some of what she had done as well as what her husband had done. And then the last is really what I would talk about revisionist history, which I find really alarming that we'll get to towards the end. But with respect to Amelda being an unreliable narrator. I just thought that that kind of captures it perfectly. And Greenfield really takes this wonderful slow burn approach to kind of help you realize that she's not the best person to account for her history and affairs of what has happened. And so as she's asked to recount the history of the Philippines and how she came to power and all of that stuff, she would then intersperse throughout slowly and surely lived experiences of people sharing how any decisions that her husband had made, along with her, any decisions that she had made or insisted on that the government make, it would impact their lives. And they just gave 
example after example. And it was just really some ways shocking and astonishing. Like the one that I didn't know about was the Kaluwitz Safari. I don't oh, know if you tell the got listeners about Kaluwitz Safari. Go ahead. The Kaluwitz oh Safari Park. So at yeah. some point, Amelda talks about to Marcos this idea that she wants to bring the animals of Africa to the Philippines to complete paradise. And it's like, what the F are you talking about? (laughs) Like, do you not know anything about biodiversity? Do you not know anything about ecology? Like, whatever the case may be. So they brought in 20 animals. And at that same time, there was an embargo from Africa sending these animals abroad. And so they were able to throw money at this. Now, let's just say they got that money from the Philippine government. Do you think it really should have been sent on the safari park to fulfill Amelda's dream of actually creating a safari park middle of the Philippines to complete paradise? It was a little ludicrous. And then what ends up happening is that they bring them over. Marcos pays off, I think it was the Kenyan government. It was Kenyan government. Yeah, sends over 20, 25 animals. And then finds an island at the top part of Palawan and then asks everybody to leave. And then these animals run free in this safari park. But the problem is, is that years later, after her exile... She says, and she talks about how she was sad to see the park become decrepit. And then they switch over to the, if you will, the groundskeeper of this safari park and say she's never visited. (laughs) She's never visited after the exile. And what's shocking listeners too is I think about 243 people were displaced. So we're going to take over this island. Hi, get off the damn island. And we're going to do this, which is even worse, right? How are you helping your country if you're displacing? You can't live here. I'm going to have my own reserve. And at first, when I saw that, did you think it was a joke? I'm like, why are we showing zebras and giraffes? Like, I just thought, like, oh, is this just background information? Like, but I'm like, oh, no, she created a reserve. I'm like, oh, God. Like, is this fiction? No, it's the truth. And the lovely lady that was the reservationist, remember, she, she had scraps of like the boxes or right. the wooden crates that to ship the, the animals in. She's like, yeah. yeah, the cargo. She's like, I kept this as a symbol. Like these are these animals being displaced who lived in a climate where they're supposed to live. Right. Yeah. And that they were prioritized over yes. people of the Philippines. Yes. It was just incredible. Like the displacement. And of course the woman that they were interviewing from Callowit, Yes. was very much like, we are not voting for the Marcuses at all because <laughs> they have totally forgotten that they've displaced all of these families. This is the interesting part. Was Afterwards, I was just like, I've never known this about Philippine history or about their dynasty mm-hmm. like that Amelda had done this. And what I found out was is that out of the 25 some odd animals, the only ones that are still alive are actually zebras and giraffes. All the other animals that they imported all eventually died by the late 90s, partly because there wasn't enough biodiversity, partly because there was like no money that was kind of flowing to all of this. And then towards the end, there was a bit of poaching that was kind of going on. Oh, God. It was just kind of like you had this idea 
and then didn't really follow through on it. And it was just like, they had countless different other examples of that. At the very beginning, showing the children's hospital that she she said, quote unquote, was her project. And then she said that there was like beautiful installations and art installations and children's playgrounds and stuff like that. And then she came and she felt really sad that at the children's cancer hospital that they had not kept up any of this. And I was thinking to myself, it's because your family embezzled all the money, you know, like close to 10 billion dollars worth. It was a hard scene to watch, especially where you see these kids just smiling and like, oh, she's here. They're trying to sit up in their beds and she's literally just throwing bills at them. Like, I know. And that's the funny part. Like, we're not even joking about this part. She's just throw, taking bills out. She has a little, I don't know, a docent with her. Like, here we go. Yeah, just throw it because that's going to help them. And what was yeah, the quote that he had written? Rain. Yeah, like, oh, here's oh, you know, uh, money for candy. Like, I'm like, yeah. what? What's happening? What These is are happening? sick kids that are not getting the help that they need, regardless of like, it's not pretty anymore. They're yeah, sick. Because giving them a thousand pesos is not which enough. Is equivalent to like, what? Which is equivalent to what? How much? Like twenty five dollars Canadian, Canadian. Yeah. but yeah. but what's really interesting too is, is that just to put it in perspective, a thousand pesos mm. for some families that is their monthly allowance, if you will. And mm. it was really interesting because the translation was actually off. The translation said, you know, she turns to her assistant and says, you know, can you give them a thousand? Can you get me the thousands? Right, is what she had said. Uh, but the translation came up, can you give me money? Can you get the money? And it was just like, like it still got the point, but it was just kind of. Incredible incredible to watch that kind of scene unfold. And I just thought to myself, you know, would really help if you actually restored their funding, if you actually restored their funding and the research and paid the doctors well and the nurses well and the attendants well, like that might actually be better for these kids than actually just giving them this one-time donation of a thousand pesos. So that was just incredible. But I think for me, the most shocking example of her being an unreliable narrator, and it was just like, I had to pause it at this point, Sigs, because she then started to say, oh, martial law was really a great time for the Marcos regime. And I was just like, did you just say that? And I'm like, this was like, she just said that. And then Lauren Greenfield, then just clip after clip after clip of torture victims where we heard accounts of them being interrogated and intimidated of these activists and journalists and teachers. And it was just like, how can you say that? Like, how could you say it was a great time? It was just incredible to just kind of watch that. Kuya, what are your thoughts in the documentary where they went to a classroom to talk to the students? I know you have a background when it comes to education, when you heard the students and their opinions about Marshall, what came over? I, yeah, I think of you like with that, that. That was upsetting for me as well, because I think it comes down to this idea of a revisionist history, and we'll kind of get back okay. to it. But just to kind of speak to it now, you know, we hear her recounting of martial law as being positive. And then what was fascinating was Greenfield then kind of contrasting that with the torture victims talking about what they have said and hearing the horrors of what they'd experienced under martial law in the Philippines, and then to do a present-day temperature check of Mm -hmm. what groups of students know about martial law, it was astounding, astounding to her students just say that they believe that martial law was this halcyon period of where Philippine society was orderly and beneficial. And it was just like, whoa. 
If it was really that orderly and beneficial, would our parents have actually left the Philippines and emigrated for, exactly. you know, quote unquote, a better life in Canada or exactly. the United States or anywhere else in the diaspora? And so I just thought to myself, that is effed, you know, and I just thought yeah. that's very troubling. And it just, to me, it just failed to encourage responsibility taking because her accounting, of course, was just incredibly untrue. And because of how untrue it was, it just made her discussion of some of the stuff even more unbelievable, which is kind of like the other point. Like What I found fascinating is her skewed reframing of all of this. It was just incredible how she would say things like, yeah, my diplomatic you know, missions around the world on behalf of my husband help solve the Cold War. And I was like... No, that's not how the Cold War ended. You, you know, it didn't end by you saying to everyone, Fidel, what's your problem, Fidel? Let's just solve it, you know? Okay, listeners, if you haven't seen, I really encourage you to watch this now. When she's talking about going to all these meetings and stuff, did you see all the photos? Like, it was her and Trump, her and Mao, her and Gaddafi. Like, I have connections. I can help. I'm like, help with what? Like, it was notorious to see those photos. I was like, what is... That's why it looked fake to me. I'm like, this, is this real? Like, is this happening? But it was such an interesting character study in this woman. That one scene that you're talking about where they had laid out all of the pictures that were all framed on an outside backyard on like eight reception tables of obviously all of these dictators and yeah. communist leaders Horrible that they, leaders. she's met around the world and then bumps into it and one of them falls as she continues to talk oh, about yeah. how she'd met the Russian leader. Yeah. And I thought, you know... The typical human reaction would be to say, oh, excuse me, right? As the helper comes by, you know, as the Cthulhu comes by and starts to pick up all the glass. And she doesn't. And I just thought, and she doesn't even, she doesn't even break, acknowledge. She just tells the documentarian, the, the film crew, like, oh, here's me and talking to the Russian leaders. And it was just like, you did not even acknowledge that you made this mistake or anything like that. I thought it was so clever for Greenfield to not edit that out because it just shows a beautiful metaphor for who she is as a person. She bumps into things, causes damage, and then waits for the poor to pick it up. And yet the poor are supposed to be grateful. And it was just kind of just incredible to watch. That says a lot. Says a lot. It says a lot. Greenfield, at the beginning, she does very small hints to like this, like to foreshadow. So in this setup for her sitting down in her living room wearing the red turno. So mm. did you hear the backgrounds? She'd be like, yes. oh, if I sit this way, is my stomach showing? And I didn't yes. need, and I did not need like the subtitles. I knew exactly what she was saying, my chan and course. all that stuff. And then did you hear like the, I guess like the photographer's like, okay, look this way, look this way. Oh, this yes. way. And she totally looks in the opposite direction. Yeah. Like it's that lead up where she's just like, oh, I, is this, it's Greenfield catching like this is a rehearsal. Like this isn't it really true. This is, is a rehearsal. Where she started well, skewing the narrative. And then when she started doing like the images and stuff, I'm like, oh, here we go. Like there's a reason why this woman gets nominated for like documentaries. Yeah, this. just incredible because it just shows and matches up with what she says at the end, which was probably the most truest thing that she's ever said, which she says, perception is real, but the truth is not. Which is, again is oh. part of the zeitgeist of this current world in terms of yeah. being post-truth in a lot of ways. 
And it was just fascinating to know that Facebook had discovered in 2019 that all of the fake news that was attributed in the 2016 election was perpetuated by her family and the Marcos camp and and Duterte, or at least that they can start to kind of frame it to that. But it was just incredible kind of how she's also skewed some reframing of things. And like, you know, two other things that I thought of and I thought, oh, I see what you're doing. You're modeling yourself after Eva Peron, right? Oh, yeah. Like go for where, it. Go you for know, it. where she had said that, that the poor need a star to look up to. And I just That's thought, right. so you're glamming yourself up with such beautiful style so that people can look up and they found one person to just be able to say that. But oh, then it was just shanty. kind of like the, yeah. Oh. yeah. But the, the squalor, just to see the squalor, you would think to yourself, I don't know about that. I would, in fact, I would probably feel a little bit of jealousy or envy for that matter. I did think to myself, wow, this feels like Eva Peron, or it felt like Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals, Evita and the song Rainbow High, where Eva Peron gets glammed up because she wants to give the poor some hope and say like, look, you too can be like this. But she doesn't give that message of you too can be like this. It's like, I'm the doña, as you said, giving out all the favors and the charity and the money. While Eva Peron very much was about, you know, and I'm not saying that Eva Peron was better because she herself was married (laughs) to a dictator as well, but at least she had this kind of mission to kind of like take from the rich and give to the poor when really she was the one that was rich and then just kind of dispensing out at her next photo op if it made her look better to take from her own riches and to kind of give it. And that's what they had also insinuated is that their financing and their riches were probably from that $10 billion that was very much embezzled. The other example too, in terms of a skewed reframing was the excess in style, you know, and It was just incredible, just incredible to hear her say that I'm only excessive because that's what it means to be a mother. And I just thought that's smothering. It's not mothering. It's smothering. Listen, listeners, there's a scene where she has (laughs) there's these paintings that Imelda Marcos has and she's behind a clam like flowing like as if she's like some sort of goddess and her children are the heads of the pearls. Did you see those photos? (laughs) I I was crying laughing. I'm like is that real? Like just her floating and inside of clams like boom boom on a pearl, his face on a pearl. She a face on a pearl. Like a modern day Venus de Milo. Exactly. I was dying. I'm like is this real? Like yeah. Well, and also what it's excessive as well. I, I know that when Malakanyang Palace was raided yes, you know, during the People's yes. Powers Revolution, they had mm-hmm. discovered all the dresses, they had discovered Art. the food, and then of yeah. course her 3,000 pairs of shoes, among them Louis Vuitton shoes before like Louis Vuitton became what it is today. It goes more than that. Like her excess, even down to her artwork of where they had Picassos, Picassos. and Rembrandts. It was hilarious that Greenfield gets the shot and then they flip over to the Philippine Commission on Good Government and the person that was heading that particular commission saying that we're looking for these pieces of artwork and that when they visited, they found like pictures of Marcos and Imelda up, but they've had evidence. And then of course, Greenfield has direct evidence. Like she's sitting underneath these paintings and then somehow like they are spirited away in the next scene where then suddenly again, it is like pictures of Marcos and Imelda. And I just thought this woman is just incredible. 
just incredible. And again, just kind of like not only just a skewed reframing, but what I've already alluded to in terms of like revisionist history. And it just makes you think she has such a casual relationship with the truth, which is so funny that that's what Judge Judy says all the time. Right? That's a great but, phrase. Which kind of leads us to our culture capital topic, which is what do Filipinos do in terms of the hard truth? And I think that this yeah. is kind of what maybe you and I were reacting to when we were watching this documentary, is this is that no one was wanting, or at least Amelda as narrator and an unreliable one at that, did not want to face the hard truth and in fact gave us another truth altogether. And it just makes me think like what she was doing was obfuscating the hard truth in hopes of kind of making it a palatable so that we can all get along. And in her case, not only just get along, but kind of rehabilitate and reinstall her family back into Malacanang Palace, back into government. But it made me just think a little bit further in terms of like, what does our culture do in terms of that? And and I was thinking to myself just recently and mm-hmm. seeing that those children, those high school students, those young high school students talk about how they thought that the martial law was all about good Philippine society and that those were better days. We see that what to do with the hard truth is revise history. And, you know, you see that with Imelda Marcos and her supporters. And then interestingly enough, I thought more about this too, calling into question the truth tellers. And we had seen that just the last episode in 319 with the documentary Thousand Cuts with Maria Ressa. I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, oh, these are other ways that we deal with the hard truth in the Philippines is is that we just start questioning the truth teller, saying there must be something wrong with them. There's something terrible with them. And you saw that with Maria Ressa. Oh my gosh. Like if you have thoughts about that. I mean, I have other ideas in terms of what our culture sometimes does with the hard truth, but I wanted to get your impressions. What I wanted to ask you, do you think when you see those students and they were talking about martial law, like, we have way more access now to information. Yes. And right. obviously, whatever they chose that group of students to talk about. But I really wonder, like, how there are other students out there going, questioning what's going on with our country? Like, what happened? Or what was going on then? Like, really questioning, like, this was wrong. Or, like, martial law isn't a good thing. I would love to hear their impact or their thoughts on it. Like, they have yeah. access to more information than we do when we were growing up. So, yeah, you know, is it available I that to them? too. I bet you it is. However, I wonder if the credibility goes more towards the parents and what they've said. You know, in a lot of ways. I am sure that the fake news gets back to the parents in some way, shape, or form. And it was Mm -hmm. just, it's just interesting. Like, if you think about who's most susceptible to fake news, do you know what population is most susceptible to fake news? No. It's actually people above 60. People above 60 are most susceptible to fake news and stuff like that. And so when you think about it, it's like, okay, so these people then suddenly revise history through fake news. You can then see this older generation getting it. And then you can see them telling the younger generation, martial law is fine. It was actually good. <laughs> actually, things were good. Ayos at ayos naman, right? Like meaning like everything was fine and fine and orderly and orderly. However, Philippine values would dictate that you don't question it because it's coming for your elders. So I just Which, wonder if that's uh, one pathway or one mechanism as to why some of those students believed what they believed instead of being taught critically. Yeah. yeah. And so, and they're not taught critically. Like you and I have had the benefit of like going through a Western system that actually 
praises us being critical of information. Mm-hmm. And which I think is suddenly starting to become a bit of a dying skill in some ways, or I hope it's not a dying skill. But I felt that they weren't given the, that critical piece of information. And even if they were presented that critical piece of information, they probably wouldn't want to betray or challenge what their parents or what their elders might be telling them about martial law. So if you change hmm. this older generation, I wonder if that's the key. I mean, that's just one hypothesis. I don't know if that's the, the truth, but that was one pathway that I could see to answering your question as to yeah. how did they get to this place where they just thought martial law was fine. Yeah. The other thoughts that I had in terms of what Filipinos do with the hard truth is, is that I think sometimes we try to smooth over the hard truth and try to make it palatable in some way, shape, or form. It just reminded me of the taste test in 319.625, where in Trece, the Netflix animation film that I had done a taste test on where Tarsay's father tries to smooth over the differences amongst the different tribes or clans, you know, in making the accords, as they had said in that particular animation series. I was just thinking, oh, that's what we also try to do is we just try to kind of smooth things over, put them under the rug or willest them out the door, whatever the case may (laughs) be. And then I was also thinking to myself, what else do we do with the hard truth? And I had also kind of reflected on Alex Tyson's My Family oh. Slave chapter, Big Little yeah. Man. But I was just thinking to myself, like ignoring and denying that something exists. And in that particular one from a couple of seasons ago, how, yeah, acknowledging that they had a family member who had forced labor within their family and mm. was really ignored and denied their identity and status and stuff like that. You know, and then the other two things that I kind of think about in terms of Filipino culture, when we're presented the hard truth, that we try to deal with it by just making it a secret. And I think that, you know, <laughs> we see that all over in teleserias. Like, just pick a teleseria <laughs> and there's, you know, some hard truth that is kept secret until it finally comes out. And then just recently, and I had noticed this when I was in the Philippines maybe six years ago, where we had heard the expression of nosebleed. And we've talked about this a couple of times. Where if you start to try to say something really difficult, they just say, oh my gosh, anak, nosebleed. Meaning it's too high up. You're giving my brain a headache. We can't think about this because we just really want to stay surface level. And so trivializing it and then just by saying comments like nosebleeds then suddenly shuts down the conversation altogether. And you don't really get to hear the hard truth. So yeah, so these are just some of the things that I thought about in terms of like our relationship or, you know, Philippine culture's relationship with the hard truth is, is that, you know, we might try to revise history or question the truth teller or try to smooth things over, or -hmm. try to ignore, deny the hard truth, or try to keep it secret in some way, shape, or form. Or sometimes I think that this is worse, actually, is trivializing it, saying that it's not important. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that, or if that's kind of brought up some thoughts. No, that's really, like, great observations. Ignore, denial, like, keeping things secret. And, like, the nosebleed comments, yeah, I... I don't have that bandwidth. It's just too much. It's almost like a shutdown. Like, yeah. And and I find silencing. Like, I find it silencing at the same time. It's like, we can't talk about this. I mean, it's another way of saying, like, keeping a secret, but it's telling you to keep a secret instead or keep that opinion or hard truth to yourself. Which mm-hmm. hopefully, listeners, you might be then asking, like, well, what could we do with the hard truth? And, mm-hmm. you know, I would say just as much as Judge Judy has said to her <laughs> plaintiffs or defendants, you have a casual relationship with the truth. I would say 
I would want our listeners to enjoy a different relationship with the truth, one where there's integrity and consistency. And I would also say, accept that the hard truth is not pretty or pleasant. It's never easy to hear the hard truth. But I think if you don't accept the hard truth, how will you ever get to healing or how will you ever get to moving forward or how will you get, I think in Canada's case, reconciliation and watching the Kingmaker reminded me of the truth and reconciliation commission of Canada's report and how they say we can only get to reconcile Canada's difficult past. If we actually tell the undecorated truth, you can't make it palatable. You just have to say what it is. And at least certainly these last couple of months here in Canada, it has been an eye opening experience and although it's horrific to hear of the residential school systems effect and impact as well as the Catholic Church's impact on the indigenous communities here in Canada we have to see it for what it is the hard truth of, of what it is or else how will we ever get to reconcile our past to our present and be able to move forward and I think that the same thing has to happen for the Filipino community too right in terms of this blotchy stain, if you will, on yeah. on Philippine history. And if you talk to Germans or even Japanese, they feel lots of shame over their fascist dictators that had taken over yeah. or when fascism had taken over. And it's incredible that we haven't been able to or the Philippine people haven't been able to do that in some ways. So I would say that not hearing the truth leads us nowhere. And I think we can learn from other countries in the world or other cultures in the world where they've actually accepted the hard truth, where they've been able to kind of move forward and reconcile their past and be able to move forward. And I think that when we discover the truth, find a better position or willing to reverse ourselves, and then we Mm. can start moving forward which kind of like leads us to our fixing of the week, which is really more of a meditation and a call to do some watchful waiting. And I think to myself, you go back into Philippine history, there is a quote from Mabini, who was a Philippine revolutionary and the first prime minister of the Philippines under President Aguinaldo. And President Aguinaldo had courted Mabini in Pangasinan, to have him be the chief justice. And Mabini had replied and said, you know, will the Filipino be able to hear the truth without being resentful or embarrassed? And I think that that's really key sigs. Like I think we need to be able to put aside those feelings of being embarrassed or resentful to be able to hear the truth. And that was said by a former chief justice of the Philippines. And I think that those are words to still live by to this day. And that was 121 years ago. And I think as we kind of end season three and as we embark Mm. onto season four and the Philippines enters into the next election year as Duterte's presidency ends and they look towards, I think we'll find out in the upcoming election year to come for the Philippines what the Philippines and our culture, uh, culture's relationship with the truth will be. So something to think about and something to watch as our fixing for the week. Any other final thoughts before I have you take it out, Sigs? No, I think you've provided a lot of meditation, a lot of food for thought. And listeners, we encourage you, watch The Kingmaker, take a listen of this, and share us your thoughts also on what you've seen. And, the, and those meditations you said about how do we deal with um, the rough truth mm-hmm. and that it needs to be undecorated. I, I totally agree with you. 
on that note, we love email. We want to hear more about what you guys think. Email us at holohollopopculture at gmail.com. If you have any future ideas, that would be fantastic as we enter season four. The Hollow Hollow podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Rate us and leave a review. You can find us on social media, Twitter, our handles at holohollopop, and we're on Instagram at holohollopopculture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chelteringen. We'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you soon, guys.